0: Just the best literature. Hello again, everyone. Well, thanks for listening in today. Uh, I don't have any comments again today. And again, I'd like to just stress that uh, you take some time out. And don't just be a listener. Be, uh, be a responder, I guess I could say. Write some comments back. We'd love to have them. It's also good for everybody out there listening to hear what other people are thinking. And uh, uh, again, it's just nice to get feedback to know. Uh, I know you 're out there listening, I know there 's a lot of you listening, and so uh, uh it'd be great to get some comments back now on our last podcast. I finished discussing Marlowe's major character flaw in that he ignored the warning signs that joining league with the company was about to lead him into serious dangers. Now, we have to remember that that flaw in Marlowe is a flaw in every human being's human nature, and uh I think what Joseph Conrad does uh obviously, with Marlowe. And then I think, again, when we get into the character of Kurtz, um, uh, Conrad wants us to learn to look for those warning signs. And also, I think, to face reality that sometimes we're thinking that we're doing great things when actually it can end up in a disaster. And so so that's just the way life is, and we need to, to learn how to deal with that and come out of that and just... Uh, uh, you know learn the warning signs and don't follow don't fall into it. Now, for today's program, I want to begin discussing Marlowe's first view of the dark continent and the company's decayed African outpost and so so again, uh, remember uh, all you listeners out there, this is just um, you know this is this is just fiction, but it is based on Conrad's life. And uh, I do, I do have a copy of his Congo diaries that the when he first goes in um, to that you know into Africa, and I am going to read some more of that as we go through, not today, but but as we continue, you know, with the story of uh, Heart of Darkness. But uh, I want to begin today by, uh, or, or I should say, I want to begin my first discussion point today with. Uh, Marlowe's first contact with the foreboding African continent. Now, it, again, remember from the last couple of programs, I, where he says, "Dash it all! I want to do this." And uh, remember, he had he had been uh, Marlowe had been a captain on these uh, much better ships. And it was really kind of you know coming down for him or a step down to be you know going to work for the company, but he he his goal was to get to africa his his goal was to really follow this boyhood adventure and uh, uh again, he missed seeing the dangers of what he was going to get into but but uh Marlowe really begins to lament what he did here, and uh he he writes, this is the bottom of the page. 48, he says, I left in a French steamer and she called in every blamed port they have out there for as far as I could see the sole purpose of landing soldiers and custom house officers. And so so here he's trying to get out, you know, to the Congo River. He's trying to get out to that hypnotic snake. And it takes forever. You know, he, he rushed around. Remember, if you remember back early early. Uh, you know, in these programs, you know, he rushed around, he really fought hard to get the company. He, uh, he, he got his, his excellent aunt to help him, you know, and he had to rush around to get ready. And then he gets stuck on a French steamer steamer. And I'll read it to you in a few minutes. It took 30 days. <laughs> it took 30 days on the steamer ship to get to the river or to get to the snake, to get to the hypnotic snake. So, so Again, this is the, the the company is dropping off all of these. Notice he says they're landing soldiers along with custom house officers. So there's something really going on that, that again, no one at the company seems to have talked to him about. Remember, the head of the company in Brussels just spent seconds with him. Uh, was more concerned if he could speak French, he could speak French, so it said good, you're good. Uh, you know he signed a, a document saying he wouldn't give away any trade secrets, which he didn't know any trade secrets anyway, and uh, he didn't really want to know trade secrets. he just wanted to see africa and so so uh, he's he's so bored on the ship now because they keep stopping, and what he says is, I watched the coast' He said, Watching a, a coast as it slips by the ship is like thinking about an enigma. And so, so here he is. He's, he's along the coast of Africa, and they're dropping these people off for the company to go to these different stations. And, and he's, he wants the only way he could get any sanity at this point is by watching, well, the seacoast and the ocean. He says, There it is before you, smiling. Frowning, inviting, grand, mean, insipid or savage, always mute with an air of whispering. Come and find out. And so so to me, that's a little creepy. And it reminds me of a horror movie. Yeah, come on over here. You know, it's like the zombie apocalypse <laughs> or maybe the werewolf apocalypse. You know, it's, it's just it's like there's this hand. You know, you can almost see these these two ladies again, you know, the two fates to saying, come on out, come on over. He said, this one was almost featureless as if still in the making with an aspect of monotonous grimness. So so here's the continent he wants to see since he's a boy and look at his first observations. He said, it's monotonous, it's grim. He goes on to say, the edge of a colossal jungle so dark green as to be almost black. Fringed with white surf ran straight like a ruled line Far, far away, along a, the land seemed to be to glisten and drip with steam, and so so not only is it dark green, it's almost black. Um, you know, it's like just got a straight ruled line, but it's it's hot. It's it's humid. You know, it's got this creeping mist. It says he goes on to say the sun was fierce. The land seemed to glisten and drip with steam. Here and there, grayish, whitish specks showed up clustered inside the white surf, with the flag flying above them, perhaps. Settlements some centuries old and still no bigger than pit heads on the untouched expanse of their background. We pounded along, stopped, landed soldiers, went on, landed custom house clerks to levy toll on what looked like a godforsaken wilderness with a tin shed and a flagpole lost in it, landed more soldiers to take care of the custom house clerks, presumably and so so you can see you know he just could not wait to get there and now uh, the trip isn't so nice and I think all of us have uh, gone on these great vacations I know uh, my wife have been able and I have been able to go to the Caribbean and we're just so excited to get there and then uh, sometimes you get there late at night and it, it doesn't look as welcoming as the commercials do. (laughs) <laughs> and so so I think we've or at least some of us have been there. But notice he goes on to say and he's talking about he's talking about the soldiers and the clerks they they put on on these uh, outposts. He says some I heard got drowned in the surf. But whether they did or not nobody seems particularly to care. Now, I think that would be disconcerting if you're if you're going out to the company. And, uh, you know, you're going to work for this company after you've been a successful, you know, ship captain. Uh, you know, I think that would be unnerving for for me anyway. It says, they were just flung out there, and on we went. Every day the coast looked like the same, as though we had not moved. But we passed various places, trading places with names like Grand Bassam, Little Popo, names that seemed to belong to some sordid farce acted out in front of a sinister black cloth. And so so he's saying like he's saying this is like the most boring play I've ever seen in my life. It just everything looked the same and uh, you know there wasn't anything that you know to interest you like something different to get to get your interest. And so so you know, these are his first glimpses of the continent he goes on to say then, the idleness of a passenger, my isolation among all these men with whom I had no point of contact, the oily and languid sea, the uniform somberness of a mournful and senseless delusion. And so, so again, this is not only great writing by Conrad, but, but he is giving us in, insights into, I think his own past, you know, the first time, uh, you know, he actually goes to, to Africa and, uh, uh, you know, the Congo. And it looks like, you know, it was it was a, a mournful and senseless delusion. It's And how many of our, let's say when we're children, we have these dreams of going uh, places and doing things, and then once you get there, well, it's not as exciting as you thought it would be. And I think we've all experienced that. He said, "'The voice of the serf heard now and then was a positive pleasure, like the speech of a brother.'" It was something natural that had its reason and had its meaning. And so so remember, he's on this ship with a lot of other people, and uh, he's not getting off at these stations. He's not the the part of the life that they're living. They're they're not even communicating, and so he's just totally bored. And, uh, you know, even what he sees of the continent doesn't really look all that appealing to him. He said, Now and then a boat from the shore gave one momentary contact with reality. And so, so I, I think uh, the way I'd like to describe this section is now, um, let's say, uh, Marlowe gets his first contact with the natives of Africa, and uh, you know, it, it it is. I think it's interesting to go to different countries, and and uh, my wife and I have had opportunity to travel, you know, quite a bit worldwide, and it's it's always interesting to to talk to and see different peoples but but again, he's talking about this boat. He said, "'It was paddled by black fellows. "'You could see from afar "'the white of their eyeballs glistening. "'They shouted, sang. "'Their bodies streamed with perspiration. "'They had faces like grotesque masks, these chaps, "'but they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, "'an intense energy of movement "'that was as natural and true "'as the surf along their coast. "'They wanted no excuse for being there,' They were of great comfort to look at for a time. I would feel I belong still to a world of straightforward facts, but that feeling would not last long and He said something would turn up to scare it away and so so I think he's he's very positive now about you know seeing seeing the native Africans at work, and he you know he sees you know these uh these seamen, I guess. They're singing, you know they're they're enjoying their work, they're enjoying what they're doing, and uh it seems like he's in comparison, the people that he's being dropped off at the company are not as happy, they're not as thrilled, they're not as excited about their life and what they're doing and so so it seems like his his first contact you know with the natives he's he's kind of positive, he's kind of curious he's he's kind of interested in it. He said, "Um, Once I remember we came upon a man of war anchored off the coast. There wasn't even a shed there, and she was shelling the bush. It appears the French had one of their wars going on thereabouts. Her ensign dropped limp like a rag. The muscles of the long six-inch guns stuck out over the low hull. The greasy, slimy swell swung up her lazily and let her down, swaying with her thin mask and the empty immensity of earth, sky, and water. There she was, inconceivable, firing into a continent. Pop would go one of the six-inch guns. A small flame would dart and vanish. A little white smoke would disappear. A tiny projectile would give a feeble screech, and nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding, a sense of lugubrious drawly in the sight, and it was not dissipated by somebody on board assuring me earnestly there was a camp of natives. He called them enemies, hidden out of sight somewhere. And so so now you can see that that Marlowe is getting a better picture of what he's gotten himself into. And, and he realizes that there's a war going on. There. He's not going there just to, to be a part of the company. He's not going there just to you know, help get ivory or help, you know, to, to get um, minerals or, you know, to get the riches of the land. There's a war going on with the natives. They're killing the natives. And the French are shelling, you know, into the bush. And he said, you can't even see huts or anything. So he, he just thinks it's insane. And so so in, in some ways, you would, you would have to believe, let's say, if, if it were you and I on that, We'd be thinking really deeply. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? You know, why am I continuing? Uh, <clears throat> it goes on now. That, that uh, you know, I think um, if you know anything about uh, you know some of these uh, companies when they're in far distant continents, and uh, I know we just finished uh, going through Moby Dick in our English class, and uh, a lot of the whaling ships when they they were out there by themselves other ships coming out would bring letters you know to uh to the the people that are stationed uh in different well ships and so so this was also part of this french steamer not only did it drop people off but it also brought letters uh for other steamships out there and uh uh here's what um uh, uh, meets when he when when they stop and they give the mail out and again this i think would be chilling and when they stopped for another steamship, he says, we gave her letters. I heard the men in that lonely ship were dying of fever at the rate of three a day and went on. And so, so not only does he come across, well, there's something different about the French and the company and the war. Um, but it seems like another problem that they have out there is that, well, you can die from the environment and uh, th- these men are dying of fever. He said, We called it some more places with farcical names where the merry dance of death and trade goes on in a still and earthly atmosphere of an overheated catacomb all along the formless coast bordered by dangerous surf as if nature herself had tried to ward off the intruders in and out of rivers, streams of death and life, whose banks were rotting into mud, whose waters, thickened into slime, invaded the contorted mangroves that seemed to writhe at us in the extremity of an impotent despair. Nowhere did we stop long enough to get a particularized impression, but the general sense of vague and oppressive wonder grew upon me. It was like a weary pilgrimage amongst hints for nightmares. (laughs) So, So again, you have to think about that. That's really great writing and a great description. But just imagine yourself that you're Marlowe, and it's like the further you get closer to the snake, the more nightmarish the situation gets. And uh, uh, so so imagine yourself as Marlowe. You're thinking, this is just getting worse and worse and worse. Now I'm entering a nightmare. Now listen to this. this. This is where he really, I think... Pops off and realizes, this was this is a uh, this was probably not a really good thing. Uh, Marlow goes on to say, "It was upward of thirty days before I saw the mouth of the big river. We anchored off the seat of the government, and uh, the, the government I think at that time was Obama But my work would not begin till some two hundred miles further on. So as soon as I could, I made a start for a place thirty miles higher up." and so so uh uh it, it's just can you can you imagine this this guy he got out of uh you know Brussels in just weeks and he took him 30 days to get to the to the river now <clears throat> essentially he had to go go further in and he gets passage on another seagoing steamer and uh, this is where he meets the swede uh the swedish captain and again this is uh, uh you know, I think just genius writing on the on the part of Conrad and uh, uh but it also begins to tell Marlowe something really, really significant. He goes on to say, this is Marlowe, I'm quoting him now, he says, I had my passage on a little sea going steamer. Her captain was a Swede, and knowing me for a seaman, invited me on the bridge. He was a young man, lean, fair and morose, with lanky hair and a shuffling gait. As we left the miserable little wharf, he tossed his head contemptuously at the shore. "'Been living there?' he asked. I said, "'Yes.' "'Fine lot these government chaps, are they not?' he went on, speaking English with great precision and considerable bitterness. "'It is funny what some people will do for a few francs a month. I wonder what becomes of that kind when it goes up country.' I said to him, "'I expected to see that soon.' So he exclaimed. He shuffled athwart, keeping one eye ahead vigor diligently. Don't be too sure, he continued. The other day I took a man who hanged himself on the road. He was a Swede, too. Hanged himself? Why, in God's name? I cried. He said he kept on looking out watchfully. Who knows? The sun too much for him, or the country, perhaps. And so so there is another uh, you know I think a, well kind of a smack in the face for Marlowe as he's uh, getting closer and closer to uh, getting to actually see the company you know on land and so, so essentially if you remember back to the doctor people don't return and now he learns from the Swedish captain people commit suicide out here <laughs> and why well is it is it the sun is too hot or is it the country or maybe is it what you do you know what you become out there now he goes on he finally gets to see the company and i think this is really um you know to see what the company's doing and uh, uh he finally gets to see even the location where the this is i guess this is like the main Branch of where the company is, he said. At last, we opened a reach. A rocky cliff appeared, and mounds of turned up earth by the shore. Houses on a hill, others with iron roofs, amongst a waste of excavations or hanging to the declivity. A continuous noise of the rapids above hovered over this scene of inhabited devastation. So, so remember now, this is the company that's supposedly bringing civilization to the natives. And, and all he sees is devastation. And so, so, you know, what is the company accomplishing? Is it really there, you know, to build up civil, civilization? I mean, you would think if they're building up civilization, they're going to be, you know, making improvements, building better homes, putting in sewer systems, putting in water systems, putting in highways. He doesn't see any of that. He says, uh, there was a continuous noise of the rapids above hovered over the scene of inhabited devastation. A lot of people, mostly black and naked, moved about like ants. A jetty projected into the river. A blinding sunlight drowned all as at times in a sudden record, uh, recrudescence of glare. There's your company station, said the Swede, pointing to the three wooden barrack-like structures on the rocky slope. I will send your things up. Four boxes, did you say? So farewell. So, so, uh, how would you like to be Marlow at this point, when <laughs> this is your last stop? They're going to deliver your bags, and uh, listen to what he sees. Uh, this is this is what he sees. This great company that's building civilization. He says, "I came upon a boiler wallowing in the grass, then found a path leading up the hill." It turned aside for the boulders and also for an undersized railway truck lying there on its back with its wheels in the air. One was off. The thing looked as dead as the carcass of some animal. So, so again, this is how you're meeting the company. And uh, you know, I remember uh, the first time I interviewed at uh, at uh, you know Westinghouse. It did not look like this. You know, it was a, uh, it was really clean and everything was organized. He says, to the left of clump of trees made a shady spot where dark things seemed to stir feebly. Now, you don't understand that is right away, but we'll figure this out. So, so you know, there's, there's something not right here. He says, I blinked. The path was steep. A horn tooted to the right, and I saw the black people run. A heavy and dull detonation shook the ground. A puff of smoke came out of the cliff, and that was all. No change appeared on the face of the rock. And then he goes on to say, they were building a railway. The cliff was not in the way or anything, but this object-less blasting was all the work going on. And so, so here Marlow's beginning to think, okay, they're building a railway, but why are they blasting the cliff? You know, he's, he's, he, he, he's not understanding it. He said, a slight clanking behind me made me turn my head. Six black men advanced in a file, toiling up the path. They walked erect. Slow, balancing small baskets full of earth on their heads, and the clink kept time with their footsteps. Black rags were round, uh, were wound round their loins, and the short ends behind waggled to fro and to and fro like tails. I could see every rib, the joints of their limbs were like knots in a rope, each had an iron collar on his neck, and all were connected together with a chain whose bites, or they were little loops, swung between them. Rhythmically clinking, another report from the cliff made me think suddenly of that ship of war I had seen firing into a continent. It was the same kind of ominous voice, but these men could, by no stretch of imagination, be called enemies. He said they were called criminals and the outraged law, like the bursting shells, had come to them in insoluble mystery from from the sea. All their meagre breasts panted together the violently dilated nostrils quivered, the eyes stared stonily uphill. They passed me within six inches without a glance, and with that complete death-like indifference of unhappy savages behind this raw matter, one of the reclaimed, uh, the product of the new forces at work, strolled despondently carrying a rifle by its middle. He had a uniform jacket with one button off, and seeing a white man on the path, hoisted his weapon to his shoulder with alacrity. And I want to read you uh, a note about um, about this. And uh, uh, essentially what Conrad is doing here, you don't pick it up uh, right away. But uh, this is in the, the Barnes & Noble um, edition of it. It says, uh, he says, One of the reclaimed, that phrase, One of the reclaimed, I just read you, he says, Marlow uses this phrase to denote the rifle-bearing African overseeing the chain gang for the same reason he refers to the white imperialists as pilgrims, to underscore the fraudulence of the benevolent rhetoric that legitimizes their ruthless activities. African collaborators, such as the one depicted here, were commonplace in Leopold's Congro. As Adam Hothschild points out, a class of foremen... Was created from amongst the conquered, like the capos in the Nazi concentration camps, and the perduki, or trustees in the Soviet gulag, and so so essentially, what what uh, Marlow is beginning to see, that this isn't so much the the company as it is the concentration camp, and you have these these uh, blacks carrying guns, and they're like the capos, they're really dominating over their own, uh, you know, their own um, countrymen. Uh, He goes, let me just repeat this. He says, behind this raw matter, one of the reclaimed, the product of the new forces at work, strolled despondently carrying a rifle by its middle. He had a uniform jacket with one button off, and seeing a white man on the path, hoisted his weapon to his shoulder with alacrity. This was simple prudence, white men being so much alike at a distance that he could not tell who I might be. He was speedily reassured with a large, white, rascally grin, and a glance at his charge seemed to take me into partnership in his exalted trust. After all, I was also part of the great cause of these high and just proceedings. And so so here Marlow begins to... to, uh, realize, let's say, let's go back to his aunt and how she had portrayed him, that he was like an apostle. And now, uh, you know, this, this uh, black capo or this, uh, you know, this Nazi capo is now, now uh, uh, giving him a rascally grin uh, because he's part of the high and just proceedings. And he's just getting there. He, you know, he doesn't really know absolutely everything that's going on. Notice, uh, he goes on to say, "'Instead of going up, I turned and descended to the left. "'My idea was to let that chain gang get out of sight "'before I climbed the hill. "'You know, I'm not particularly tender. "'I've had to strike and defend it off. "'I've had to resist and to attack sometimes. "'That's only one way of resisting "'without counting the exact cost "'according to the demands of sort of life "'as I had blundered into.'" He said, "'I've seen the devil of violence and the devil of greed.'" And the devil of hot desire, but by all the stars, these were strong, lusty, red-eyed devils that swayed and drove men. Men, I tell you, but as I stood on the hillside, I foresaw that in the blinding sunshine of that land, I would become acquainted with a flabby, pretending, weak-eyed devil of rapacious and pitiless folly. So I'm going to go ahead and end there today. So now that's all the time we have for today's program. Now next time, um, I'll continue my discussion of uh, Marlowe's first contact with uh, his days at the company Outpost. Now you can buy Heart of Darkness at Amazon.com. You may be able to also find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And of course, you can also check your local library. Now, please write me any comments you may have to jbl at jbl.pcug.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at JBLiterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So, until next time, keep reading.